Uh, it's not a small thing to know what you're thinking and feeling as you're thinking or feeling it, rather than having kind of irritation, leading to anger, and not even realizing that's what you're feeling. And you go off to the computer, and you type out that email, and you press send, then maybe two hours later you go, whoops. I guess I said that with some hostility, didn't I? And in uh, the old days of email, which is a very funny thing to be able to say, um, I know if you had a, if you were using a platform like AOL, and the recipient of your nasty, hostile email was also on AOL, there was a magic button you could press on your computer called unsend. And it was like something in your computer reached out to theirs and just pulled it back as though it never was. I once unsent an email to a friend. It wasn't all that nasty, but I thought better of it. And she wrote to me right away and she said, the weirdest thing just happened. <laughs> I was looking at my screen and there was an email from you and then it just disappeared. <laughs> and I wrote back to her and I said, isn't that strange? <laughs> Who understands these things anyway, right? But life doesn't give us that many unsend buttons. So it's not a small thing to know we're feeling angry, to be able to recognize that before we've acted and maybe done something very consequential. A definition of mindfulness I've used a lot came from, kind of along these lines, came from an article in the New York Times I read many years ago. It was about one of those mindfulness in schools programs like a very early one. And this was about a fourth grade classroom in California, which was doing this pilot project on using some tools of mindfulness. And I thought it was a, a really good article. I especially liked two quotations in it. One was from one of the researchers who said, all day long we tell kids to pay attention, but we never teach them how. And then they asked one of the kids, so this is fourth grade, that means he's like nine or ten years old. They said to him, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And he replied, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness is. And I thought, great definition. <laughs> I think that is a great, great definition. Because what does it imply? It implies knowing you're feeling angry as you start to feel angry. It also implies a certain balanced relationship to that anger. If you just fall into it and get overwhelmed by it, we'd probably hit a lot of people in the mouth, right? Life can be really frustrating. But at the same time, if you hate it, you fear it, you can't stand that you got angry and you get tighter and tighter and tighter, then you explode, right? 
So mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth, which implies you're aware quickly of what you're feeling. You have a certain balanced relationship. You can recognize this is anger. Maybe you can look deeply into the anger. It creates a certain sense of space, and in that space, we see options. It doesn't mean you're judging what you're feeling. It means you have the space and time to not just act from it kind of automatically. So maybe in that space, you think, you know, hit someone in the mouth last week. Didn't work out that well. Maybe I'll try this. Maybe I'll write that email and not press send right away. Or something that, in doing the research for my book, Real Happiness at Work, something someone suggested to me was, if you sense that email might be very provocative, then send it to yourself first and get to read it as the recipient. What does it feel like to get an email like that? You know, then decide. Mindfulness will create the kind of space that we need to feel many options in terms of how we might act or, or react or respond. Okay, so we're going to sit together um, a little bit and then we'll just have time for questions before lunch. So you can, in this sitting as well, just settle your attention on the feeling of the breath on the sensations of the in and out breath. As very small things come and go, or relatively small things come and go, sounds, emotions, thoughts, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them flow on by. You can rest your attention on the breath. But if something comes up with a bang, it's really got some strength to it, some intensity to it. If it pulls you away from the breath, strong emotion, strong sensation, something like that, spend a few moments just recognizing this is what's happening right now. There's joy, there's sorrow, there's thinking. There's pleasure, there's pain. Whatever comes readily to you, just to recognize this is what's happening right now in a balanced way. No judgment. See if you can let go, bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath, which is like the home base. And if at any time you feel kind of jumbled, there's too much going on, you feel you've lost balance, just come back to the breath and see if you can nurture that connection to the feeling of the breath. Okay, so we'll sit together for a little bit.
So uh, we're going to have some time for questions or discussion. Um, the way we're going to do that is have your microphones brought forward a little bit. Um, and as we said last night, if you prefer to ask a question in French, uh, that's fine. Pascal would, will translate for me. Um, and if uh, you have an issue with mobility and it's hard to get to the microphone, we're going to have to work out some other system by this afternoon, I think. <laughs> Hi. You just rang the bowl, not once, not twice, three times. Why? Why did I ring three times? Uh, that's just how I've heard it done. I know that students of Thich Nhat Hanh do it once. I think they ring three times in the beginning and once at the end to mark the beginning and the end of the sitting. So when students of Thich Nhat Hanh are sitting with me, they're very confused. <laughs> as I, Or maybe it's a good thing, you know, that what seems to be the end of the sitting is really kind of the beginning also. Um, there are many things in the tradition in which I studied uh, which are done three times. Who knows why? Um, it's, it's almost just like the poetry of it. You know, it's, it's why they, they do that. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I'm very loud. Oh, that's okay. I think if you come a little closer to the microphone. My name is Nelly, uh, Nelly Martinez, and I'm from Argentina. Uh, but I have to ask, I was going to ask you, You do have the answer. That's great. Thank you. That's fabulous. Thank you. 
Okay, so I'll, I'll just respond a little bit to that, and then uh, um, I think really it is kind of the spirit with which we approach things that frees us or not, and certainly some things hurt. I think it's unreasonable; it's not fair to ourselves to expect to just be like you know, totally calm. Uh, when when things really hurt, they hurt. But I, I quoted last night this one study that I found very interesting where um, in terms of physical pain, which I think also means a lot in terms of emotional pain, uh, what meditators they studied were able to do that non-meditators could not do was to, like, they would react to the pain. Everybody reacted to the pain but non-meditators would flip into the cycle of anticipation. When's it going to come back? How bad will it feel? What's going to happen? Whereas meditators could, you know, just as human beings, of course we react, but then they could let go. Right? So they weren't always in this heightened state of anxiety uh, and tension and stress, which only makes it worse. So there's some things we can do, there's some things we cannot do, but for all the things we can do, it makes a big difference. And so, uh, and we know, I, I think probably just living a life, sometimes we know people with a, a load of emotional pain, you know, a lot of really tough things have happened. And uh, they're very loving. You know, I've certainly met people like that, I, I'd say, um, who really were models for me that uh, they could go through so much and, and have compassion for others and even an interest in others. You know, sometimes I look at these people and I think, wow, that had happened to me. I don't know if I care about anybody else, you know, which is the more common reaction. Like, we feel isolated, we feel bitter. Um, we collapse on that situation as though it's the only thing we can know or have. Um, we really can uh, respond in so many different ways. And I've always been amazed when I meet people, and I meet many, and certainly amongst my teachers, who've been through a lot, and there's such a wealth of compassion that comes from them, um, that you realize, oh, that's possible. That's really possible. And then it's, I, I just find that very inspiring, that that, that can be that way. Okay, using meditation to know your true self. Um, first of all, I think uh, we start to see all that conditioning. And we see, uh, I think in a, a personal way and an impersonal way, like a more universal way. 
So one of the things I sometimes talk about is looking at my own fear. So just as I use the example of anger, um, it's very easy, of course, just to judge the fear and judge myself or fall into it. You know, it's kind of opening that door and having one of two extreme reactions, trying to pretend it's not there or getting completely overwhelmed by it. But if I can be in that place in the middle, which is mindfulness, then I can learn more about the nature of fear and what my fear is like. So when I've looked at my own fear, um, I would say that rather than the common thing we often hear, which can also be true, but I think for me is not the biggest truth, it's not the strongest truth, that common thing we often hear that we're afraid of the unknown, I tend to be afraid when I think I do know. And I'm just telling myself these stories, it's going to be really bad, right? And when I remind myself I don't know, I actually feel relief. So it's the stories that builds, you know, and create a world that's very small and uh, really uh, not working for me in any way. Right? And that when I can release from the stories, I can have more a sense of space. So that's a personal insight, right? And we, can't, we all have those insights. Um, this is what triggers me. This is what, how my anger manifests. This is, you know, whatever it might be. And then the impersonal insights are more about like the nature of the fear. Look at that. It's so strong. And within itself, it's changing. It's porous. It's not so solid. Or look at that. There's a quality of awareness that can be with that fear that's not somehow marred or ruined by the fear. That the awareness itself can go anywhere. Look at that. And so... Here you have all those examples of those images, say, in Tibetan Buddhist teaching, um, how the thoughts and feelings that go through your mind are like clouds moving through the sky. And at some point you feel like who you are is much more like the sky than the clouds. Of course, the clouds are always different. Some are really nice and fluffy looking. Some look very ominous. But they're all just clouds moving through the sky. Whereas that unconfined, unconstrained, open, spacious awareness is like the sky. And you begin to see, I mean, we would kind of put it like this in mindfulness language. Look at that. I can be mindful here too. Look at that. Mindfulness is still the same. It's not broken. It's not somehow distorted because now I'm looking at sorrow instead of joy. Or look at that, I can be with joy in a mindful way and it doesn't, it's not the same thing as dampening it down or, or trying to affect it. So there's much more of a sense of um, the changing nature of all conditioned things that come and go, because that's the truth of how they are. And uh, truths about impermanence, truths about interconnection, which we'll talk about a lot in the afternoon, that aren't 
like giving yourself a lecture, you know, like I spent all day doing a loving-kindness retreat and I better feel like you, you know, person asking me for directions is somehow connected to me. We're just, we feel differently because we see, oh, our lives are interconnected. That's just how things are. And we, we understand more and more about that um, home. Like if we say the mind is naturally radiant and pure, the mind is shining, it's because of visiting forces that we suffer. Well, who's at home, actually, <laughs> if all these forces are just visiting? And it's something experiential, you know, that really happens through, through paying attention. And so that's what I mean by the true nature. One of the... Uh, problems in a way, I don't know if it's a problem exactly, but maybe it's a problem, uh, with mindfulness getting so popular um, as a word is that mostly it's used, and this is helpful, it's good, it's really beneficial, mostly it's used uh, just as a, a kind of factor of fulfillment. It's like if I'm drinking this cup of tea and I'm feeling the warmth of the cup and I'm smelling the tea and I'm tasting the tea, if I'm really mindful of my experience, then it's going to be a whole lot better a cup of tea. It really is. And that's a very good thing in terms of one's life, right? And so that's most of what I see mindfulness being used for, is like, you should really enjoy your cup of tea. You should really enjoy your life. And like I say, this is very, very good. But classically, mindfulness is really the platform for insight. I mean, it also helps you enjoy your tea, no matter why you're practicing. And that is great, but it's really meant for understanding things, understanding the nature of suffering, understanding the nature of happiness. Where does happiness actually come from? And this is something, again, we'll talk about in the afternoon. If I just follow out these patterns, like the dictation of society about where I'm supposed to, how I'm supposed to be happy, am I really happy? Unlikely, you know? Um... What is happiness? What is strength? Is love, loving kindness really a weakness? Is compassion really making me weak? Is getting lost in endless fantasies of revenge really making me strong? You know, we can take a look uh, because we have that capacity to pay attention in that balanced way. And so we understand so much more. Am I really as alone as I sometimes feel? What about the idea that this is an interconnected universe? What if I experience life that way? Now, how does my worldview shift? How does that insight guide my actions? And so on. So that's really what mindfulness um, historically has, has been about. So uh, it's an interesting time. <laughs> yeah. When um, we were talking about looking at Let's see your fear or your anxiety, and you see it's not as solid as it seems to be, there's movements and stuff. It's really kind of a practical question. Why, when you meditate, you don't think about this stuff. You just go back to the breathing, and then after, 
think about it and you go you go in these uh, in these stuff. Is that is that the the way to go? Uh, it depends. It's not so much that uh, in the meditation you want to think about it, but like when I said, if something comes up very powerfully, uh, like you're with the breath and maybe there's a strong amount of anxiety, you might spend a few moments just looking at the anxiety. Um, you feel it in your body. So you can recognize it when you're then in having a conversation with somebody and that same feeling comes up, you go, oh, right, I know what that is. And you also, it depends, you know, how balanced you feel, how much time you have. Maybe you spend enough time looking at that anxiety um, so that you just notice these things. Oh, look at that, it's not so solid. Look at that. Um, this provokes it more. Or when I decide... I'll only feel this for the rest of my life. That makes it much worse. You know, so you're just observing a little bit, and then you come back to the breath. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hi. Is this working? Yeah, okay. Thank you, first of all, for coming. This is wonderful to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask how you can tell the difference between a visiting force that you would respond to with acceptance, observation, and non-reactivity versus one that is more of a signal that some change is required, either Mm -hmm. workplace, marriage, Mm -hmm. friendship. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's probably always a good idea to start with the acceptance. It doesn't mean you're going to end with the acceptance um, and do nothing to make a change. But uh, in understanding action that we might take, um, uh, and again, we'll go into this much more in the afternoon. I need a prop. That's why. I that. um, uh, in terms of, say, the Buddhist psychology. Uh, you can divide an action into, or you can see an action has different elements to it. Anything we do, any change we make, anything we say, or even refraining from saying something or doing something is a kind of action. And the first aspect of it is what we call intention or motivation. Right? It's the heart space that leads us to taking an action. So if I was to pick up, you know, reach my hand down, pick up this object, Kuan Yin, goddess of compassion, the Chinese tradition, if I were to reach down, pick up this object, and give it to one of you, all anybody sees is my hand moving down, picking up an object, and moving it forward. But the question is, why? You know, what's happening within me? so that my hand did that, right? And that could be many different things. Maybe I'm offering it to you because I like you and I want you to have it. Or maybe I see you have that really cool-looking water bottle and I think, well, hey, you know, I'll give you this and maybe you'll give me the water bottle. Or maybe I don't like you and I think, it's not even mine, you know, <laughs> and uh, I have a feeling that her serenity 
will really annoy you after a while. <laughs> you know, but it's like the same smile and the same gesture, but it's coming from a really different place. So within the Buddhist psychology, which is different than the way we think of intention in the West, the intention or the motivation is considered very, very important because that's where the energy actually is. It's not in my hand, picking up an object and moving it forward, and it's something only I can really know. All anybody sees is that movement, right? But it's the intention that distinguishes one action from what on the surface will seem like a completely identical action. Okay, so then I'll, I'll finish this afternoon in terms of the model, but when we seek to make a change, um, the intention or the motivation guiding that is considered really interesting and important. So is it compassion for ourselves? Is it disdain for another? Is it fear? Whatever. And so that's why I say to begin with, to really come close to our feelings, which means accepting them. Oh, this is how things are right now. This is what this feels like. And to observe them is the basis for really being able to see more clearly into our motive. But definitely, you know, you don't want to just equate mindfulness with passivity. Like, I'm going to stay in this miserable job, you know, forever, if I have options. Not everyone has options, right? But if I have options, it doesn't mean I'm going to stay in this miserable job forever because I'm mindful, you know, like I'm cool. Um, or I'm not going to say anything about systems change or anything like that. But our, our motivation can be very different than what it might ordinarily be. To when we're just in a big reaction and we're not seeing options and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, this is sort of a piggyback question on the earlier question about the true self. Um, I find as I spend, and I hope this won't sound uh, too abstract, a question but as I spend more and more time meditating, I find that I'm able intimately to contact that space or whatever mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. um, of the cloud or of the, of the sky or the clouds uh, or that pure awareness or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But then as I do that a little bit more, I get a sense of continuity like that radiant uh, mind has been there um, sort of all along. And I even have sort of like you know, intermittent memories of having contacted at previous uh, points in my life. But the thing that's getting in the way for me is that then that leads me to believe that there is a sort of essential self. And then it has me wondering if I'm maybe a Hindu rather than a Buddhist. You know what I mean? That type of thing. Like, is there not an essential self? Is there not a durable, consistent, yeah. hardcore selfhood that is that? Well, I mean, you could be a Hindu instead of a Buddhist, that would be fine. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a question of languaging. You're right. In the Buddhist tradition, you wouldn't say there's a hardcore essential self. You would say um, something like nature of mind. It's a process, not a thing. Right? And so even that process is changing, but it has its own nature. Like mindfulness will have its nature, which is that quality of spaciousness, whatever it's looking at. And so, by the way, we're loving kindness. Um, that's the beautiful quotation from the Buddha where he said develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space 
which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. So if somebody was standing here in the middle of the room throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in the space for the paint to land. Right? It's not going to get ruined because it was a really, really bad color choice. Um, so develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. That open, that unconfined, that free. You know, that mind is not going to become a different quality of mind in the next moment. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's a thing, right, that's enduring, that's permanent. Just its characteristic stays the same as it keeps coming and going. So if you prefer that, that way of description, then uh, you're right at home with the Buddhist way of languaging it. If you don't prefer it, then... You can call yourself anything, you know, it's fine. Bonjour. Une question en français, j'aurais besoin d'un traducteur. C'est sur le même sujet de vrai soi et le soi conditionné, finalement. Je me demandais, est-ce que le vrai soi, c'est un concept qui vraiment existe Parce que, à ce que je comprends, Euh, tout est impermanent, tout est conditionné, et on serait plus à comment faire pour dealer avec le fait qu'on est en soi conditionné, avec tout ce qui se passe, tous ces visiteurs dont vous parlez, euh, la colère, la tristesse, mais il y a également tout le reste, la joie, le bonheur, l'harmonie, ce sont également des visiteurs qu'on peut ouvrir et, et recevoir de la même façon que les autres. Donc je me demandais, est-ce que c'est en danger de vouloir chercher le vrai soi Do you want to go to the microphone? That was beautiful, thank you. I want to ask, I have one, one, okay. I have one book uh, of mine I see over there translated into French and I know others haven't. My problem, of course, is that I never know if it's a good translation or not, you know. So I need someone else to read it and tell me if it's good. I will. Okay. So the question is about real self and conditioned self. And um, uh, so how, isn't the question maybe more about how to deal with the conditioned self and all of these visitors and uh, the reifying around the self, is that, could that become a problem? Mm -hmm. And I'm translating in my own words a little bit here, mm -hmm. is, uh, but I think I'm in the field of what you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, maybe just to start. I yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And uh, in terms of the Buddhist teaching, and certainly, um, the schools of Buddhism found primarily in Burma, Sri Lanka, uh, to some extent Vietnam, um, Thailand. Uh, the emphasis is usually on the problem. You know, that's what's really talked about more than anything. Um, with little hints, you know, about uh, what it's like uh, when we're not so entangled when we're not so caught in the problem. But that's what's practical. That's what's realistic. Um, there is this list, for example, the five hindrances of what people so commonly experience in meditation. 
and that is grasping or attachment or desire, uh, aversion, which is anger or fear, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. I heard that list like 90 billion times when I was living in India, and I was happy every single time. Because each time I thought, it's not just me. <laughs> you know, that's uh, really reassuring <laughs> that this seems to be a kind of human pattern or a universal pattern. We sit, we look within, we see what tends to be really strong as a habit. That's holding on, pushing away, numbing out or going to sleep, getting restless, anxious, worried, and being full of doubt. Doubt about ourselves, doubt about a process. And these are all workable. There are ways through mindfulness and so on that we can deal with all of them and come to a better place. But that's what a lot of the teaching is directed toward. It's like, okay, here's the problem. Let's pay attention to how we can be different. And then automatically we come to a resolution or we have a different sense of who we are and, and the nature of life. Um, the reified self, that idea of feeling so um, kind of enclosed, uh, disconnected from this, again, we'll talk about it a lot this afternoon, um, you know, the way we can feel so disconnected uh, is a big problem because it's not true. And uh, whenever we live in defiance of how things actually are, we suffer. And not only do we suffer, we tend to cause suffering for others. You know, so that strong sense of self and other and us and them, it's actually not true because we live in an interconnected universe. And maybe just for a few moments I'll have you do uh, the exercise um, that I really love, which I think I did last night, which is just imagine for a few moments or call to mind how many people are involved in some way in the fact that you're sitting here in this room right now. Right? Because very likely no one was just walking down the street and had the thought, I'm going to go in there. <laughs> We're here because of conversations and connections and interactions and relationships. Somebody gave us a book. Somebody told us about their meditation practice. Somebody told us about this organization. So many people are actually implicated in this moment in time. We are all here because of this confluence, this flow of connection. That's what this moment in time is made of. And that's what every moment in time is made of. We live as part of a network. That's just the truth of life. So sometimes I do this reflection and I think about, there's an agency in New York State, uh, the Board of Regents, which gives out scholarships. And um, they gave me a scholarship, which was how I was able to go to college, which is how I went to India, because I went to India on this school program. 
So sometimes I do this reflection and I think of them. Right? Because they're part of why I'm sitting here right now. So just do it for a few moments and see who comes to mind. And you get a little bit of a sense of that way of seeing life where we're kind of part of a greater whole. So that's an experience. And that is more accurate, it's more truthful than the way we normally go about. Okay, yeah, last question, then we'll just break for lunch. Yes, uh, and my question is, is really around the same theme okay. that we seem to like here, uh, about self-knowledge and true self and conditioned self. Uh, I would like to hear you a little bit about how important do you think it is to know where you come from and what's your history and your childhood and, you know, the, 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 where your emotions come from. Is it important? Is it necessary? Uh, or is it just to be present here and now is more important? Um. I don't know, maybe that's a very individual question. It might be very important for some people and not perhaps so important for others. I think from the point of view of meditation or, or the Buddhist teaching, knowing where your emotions come from is perhaps not so important. What is important is the insight about conditioning. You know, it's not just being aware of what you're feeling right now although that's very good, it's having that insight that, oh, it's like just the, like the exercise we just did. This moment doesn't exist in isolation. That we have certain patterns, we have certain conditioning that fosters certain kinds of reactivity. That can shift, that can change, but understanding it in a more impersonal way rather than, like, I'm a horrible person, uh, just seeing, oh, yeah, look at that. There's kind of almost like cause and effect or conditionality at play. It's an insight just like impermanence is an insight. So it's a little bit like, um, you know the sense we have if you believe in astrology, for example, and, and you think, oh, it's not such a personal problem, it's because I'm a Leo, you know? <laughs> that there are influences. doesn't mean there's nothing I need to change or I need to just feel victimized by those tendencies. But you think, oh yeah, you know, it's not like my fault. I'm not actually in total control, which is a problem uh, we have. <laughs> Talk about living in defiance of the truth. Um, and this is a big meditative insight. You cannot control what comes up in your mind. You cannot. Because as conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. We can change those conditions, for sure. But that's different than control. You know, which is so unfair to ourselves to say, I'll never be afraid again. I've grieved long enough. This will never come back. It's like saying, I'll never fall asleep meditating again. 
you know, I mean, there are things we can do to affect that, but the idea of having total control, like, what if you come into the room and it's 110 degrees, or whatever you would say in Celsius? <laughs> uh, you know, what if uh, you didn't get any sleep the night before? Then very possibly you'll get very, very sleepy doesn't mean you could have stopped it. You may relate to it differently. And that's, that's all the difference. But I remember one of my teachers, this man named Menindra, saying to me once, he said, why are you so upset about this thought that came up in your mind? Did you invite it? Did you say at 12.15, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred, please? <laughs> no, but when conditions come together, for something to arise, it will arise. And the amount we blame ourselves, and we think, I'm so terrible, I should have been able to stop this. Like imagine recapturing all that energy and being different with it, rather than thinking, I should have, which we can't do. So it's kind of in that light. You know, we understand, yeah, there are patterns, there's conditionality. And if it helps to do that exploration very personally, then it's helpful. You know, to understand, yeah, there's a track here. It's the track I'm used to. Um, it's going to take some courage and effort to step away from that and experiment with being different. And that works. It actually happens. Um, you know, here we have the more current science of neuroplasticity where, like when I was younger and in school, we were taught that your brain could not change past the age of, what, 20-something, unless in a bad way, you know, if you had an accident or something. Um, and now, you know, everybody's all about moment-to-moment -moment changes in, in your neurons, in your structure, in, in the function structure, and channels of your brain. Look at that. You know, so discovering the conditionality doesn't mean you're locked in there. Okay, so we're going to break for lunch, because we have to. Um... <laughs>